2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, this is what the word of the Lord says. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be, cred- be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. And the section we'll be looking at here, beginning at verse 7. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet, be, yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet, make, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Let's pray one more time for the Word. Well, Father, this is a special Special time, Lord, for us to be here gathered as your people, lifting up our praises to you, remembering you through the Lord's Supper. What a glorious, glorious uh, event, Lord. What a glorious ordinance that we have, this great remembrance of the things that your Son has done. And Lord, here we have before us just a glorious picture, Lord, now of The Apostle Paul, his life, his labors, his legacy that he has left us. And with it, he has left us. And you, Lord God, have left us such a glorious instruction and so much here for our edification. And so I pray, God, that you would open up the mind of our hearts, our hearts and our minds, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would give us illumination into your scriptures. Lord, we're so grateful for the word of God today. Where would we be if we didn't have your word? Where would our marriages be? Where would our families be? Where would our lives be? God, where would each and individual person here, where would we be, Lord, without your word, the light of your word? Thank you, Lord God, for delivering us from our ignorance and the darkness of our sin. Thank you for your word, Lord. We pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, you may be seated. Again, this is sort of a second part now of a sermon entitled, Lessons from a Commendable Minister of God. And no, the Apostle Paul is not really giving us, uh, he's not really giving us lessons for how to grow a church. He's giving us the litany of commendations that came with his ministry. And they're really quite shocking. They're kind of surprising. If you were to do a pastor's conference, if you were to do a leadership conference, if you were to do a conference teaching young ministers how to conduct themselves in the ministry, I wonder if they'd look anything like this, that uh, the things that Paul says made his ministry commendable uh, oftentimes was consisting of the hardships and the, the sufferings and the afflictions that the apostle was going to be going through. Such a litany of afflictions that Paul gives us here, and they are wonderful. And the reason I think that Paul has given us this list at this juncture, if you remember in the context, beginning in verse 1, going all the way down to verse 2, and uh, right before he gets to verse 3, he says that it is time for salvation. He says the, this is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And in essence, what Paul is saying, look, such a great and glorious salvation has dawned. This is, a, this is eschatological glory we're looking at here. God has ushered in the end of the age through Jesus Christ, and he has poured out his spirit, lavishing his spirit upon us. He's brought salvation to us. And what Paul is saying is, look, in no way is my ministry or my manner conflicting with that. In no way am I presenting a stumbling block. In no way am I going to uh, be a hindrance to the work of God. And this is proof that that is so, that his ministry was 
perfectly commendable that he was actually a servant of God. He was in God's service. And that's what he says in verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, and we should hear that word, in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And then the, the phrase that follows, in much endurance. And then comes a list of unqualified things like afflictions and sufferings and sacrifices like hunger and possibly even fasting and purity and knowledge and patience, these virtues of the Apostle Paul, all of them, by the way, that demanded great endurance to keep up, as the Puritans would say, to keep up religion and your soul before God. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. So, Earlier, last, last time we looked at this passage, I gave you three different aspects of his ministry and three different things that made his ministry so commendable. So today I'd like to give you the last two. Okay, so this is really point four and point five for all of you scribal note takers in the church. Okay, this is number four really, and that is his spiritual fortitude. Oh, and I want you to see this because it's so applicable for every single one of us. Whether you're in ministry or not, whether you're a pastor or ever will become a pastor, wherever you're a missionary, wherever, whether or not you're in full-time ministry, if you are a believer, these virtues, these qualities are those which you should desire for your own life to the extent and to the degree that you can have them. Look at what he says here in verse 7. He says, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. What a glorious picture of a well-equipped apostle ready for whatever ministry troubles may come. He was equipped. He had what, uh, what was needed for the task, if you would. But look at how it begins, right? Verse 7, that very first phrase, in the word of truth. In the word of truth. Now, obviously, this is foundational. I mean, it doesn't get any more fundamental than this right here. If you were to have a commendable ministry, if you were to have a biblical ministry, then you have to have the Bible at the very foundation. But listen, as foundational as that is, it's not obvious. As foundational as that is, it is not, uh, it is not subconscious. Some folks don't do it. Some people don't have the word of truth as the foundation of their ministry. They've opted for other alternative things. Also, if you look at this phrase throughout the Scriptures, it's very important. It's a phrase that Paul uses. It's actually a technical phrase referring either to the very word of God itself or to the gospel. For this reason, if you have an NIV, we will forgive you at this juncture because the NIV blows it here. Look, I like paraphrased translations. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they give you new light. They, they kind of shed a new understanding on a passage, and they serve a certain purpose, and that's okay. But here, the NIV just blew it. I think the uh, translators were absent on this day because they've translated the word, the word of truth, as truthful speech. And that is dead wrong. Because I looked up this Greek phrase all over the Word of God, and you get verses, equivalent verses like this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, after listening to the message of truth, that's the same sort of construction there. The gospel, that is an appositional statement. In other words, word of truth, gospel, they're the same thing. He's equating the two right here. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, says the same thing. He says, there is a hope for you laid up in heaven, which you previously have heard. Where? In the word of truth, the gospel. And even more broadly or more generally speaking, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says what? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, obviously there, that is referring to the whole counsel of God, to the whole Scripture. That is what Paul was devoted to. He was devoted to the entirety of the word of God in his ministry. And he devoted himself to the word of God for a purpose. 
If you look, for example, at Acts chapter 18, in Acts chapter 18, which is coincidentally taking place in Corinth, so it's very relevant to this epistle, but it is there that we are told that the Apostle Paul devoted himself to the study of the Word of God. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, we are also told that he devoted himself to teaching the Word of God. So you see what's going on there. The Apostle Paul is taking in the Word in order to give it out. In other words, digesting the Word of God is for the purpose of disseminating the Word of God, unleashing the Word of God, sending the Word of God forth. That's what it's for. And that's what he did, both evangelistically, as we see his instruction to Timothy, who is a pastor in 2 Timothy 4, 5. He says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That is one imperative that many pastors don't like to obey. To be honest with you, I don't like to obey it all the time. I would rather just stay home and sit among my books in my cozy little office with my nice hot cup of coffee and just kind of, you know, hide out like a hermit. I'm perfectly fine with hermit life, okay? I could do it, right? i got some folks here that would, that would agree wholeheartedly with that. But at the same time, the, the minister of God is called to this task. He is called to the evangelistic task just as much as Paul would tell him in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that his task was also not just evangelistically focused, but also focused in the local church, pouring into the local church, teaching among the local church, teaching the other men in the church, equipping other leaders for the work of the ministry. I consider it a great failure of any church if they are not in the active pursuit of teaching and training other men and women of God, just like Ephesians 4.11 says, for the work of ministry. You are not here just to come in and listen to my voice week after week after week, and you're like the Dead Sea. You take in, but you don't have any outlets. You need to have outlets in your own life. All of this teaching, all this preaching, all of my exegesis hopefully becomes the energy for ministry and service in your life. That's the whole purpose of it. That's the design of God. It is all built around the Word of God, and that's why Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. What is your main imperative? What is, what's to be the very, at the very heart, the very foundation of everything that you do? Preach the Word. Be devoted to the Word. Wish that we could stay there all day, but I've got about... 20 other points I need to get to. Look at the next one, though, because they're, they're sort of, they're, they're joined together. They go hand in hand. He didn't only have the proper proclamation, but we could say he also had the proper power. He says, in the power of God. In the power of God. Now, let me begin by saying this, that when Paul calls on the power of God, in the same breath, in essence, he is also confessing his own inadequacy. He's also confessing to the fact that he is inadequate in himself, that he doesn't have what it takes. He doesn't have the power necessary to fulfill his ministry. Just for example, chapter 3, if you just look over, same book, chapter 3, just a few chapters over here. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves, to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, the word there, competency, our competency, our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. See, his adequacy, his fitness, his, his, com- his, his, uh, his competency for ministry came from God. It wasn't flesh-born. It didn't originate in the power of his flesh. It didn't originate in the power of his earthly wisdom. It didn't originate in the power of his eloquence. It didn't originate in the power of his academics. It originated in this staunch dependence on the power of God. Without this, 
Paul could not have done everything that he did. He says the same thing, for example, in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. After giving a summation of everything that Paul does, teaching every man, instructing every man, he says this, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And you say, well, who is it? Who is the one working within him? I, I would submit to you that the power of God referred to here is Trinitarian power. It is not just the power of the Father, just the power of the Spirit, or just the power of the Son. It is the power of each individual member of the Trinity at work in him. For example... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. There it is the Father who is strengthening us. And in, in Ephesians 3, 16 and Romans 15, 13, it is the Spirit who is empowering us. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, as we'll see, it is the Son who empowers Him. Consequently, where it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, it is Jesus who is at work in Him. He is the one who is enabling him to do all things. It is this great power that he had. But not only is the dynamic, I believe, in this phrase or this idea that the power of God was at work in him, but also that the power of God was at work through him. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, obviously a text that we come back to time and time again. But there it reveals that not only was God sustaining him, not only was God empowering him personally to be able to maintain and endure with much endurance, but more than that, the power of God also flowed through him, through his preaching, through the preaching of Christ crucified. It says there in verse 4, And my message my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, that is merely human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, and of power. And most commentators there would say that that power he's talking about is not just the power of a transformed life, not just the power of sanctification, but also miracle-working power, sign-working power as an apostle. Obviously, Paul had the signs of an apostle, and it says, so that your faith, and this is the whole purpose, would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is what he's after here. Next, he moves on to another, to another description of his ministry. And this time, he launches into a military metaphor. Notice what he says, or the description that he brings here in the next phrase. He says, it's not, not only is it in the Word of God, the power of God, he says, but by, and he uses a different preposition. I hope your Bible has this. It's not in, but by. He switches prepositions, I think, subtly, but still significantly. In other words, he's saying, this is the means by which he makes his warfare. This is the means by which he battles in the combat of ministry. He says, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Isn't that amazing imagery? It reminds you, of course, of some of those classic passages of Paul when he teaches, for example, the armor of God. That we are to be, we are to be decked in the armor of God. That we are to take up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, and these various other things. But even there in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting Isaiah 59, or at least he's, it's an echo out of Isaiah 59. He says, uh, Isaiah says of Yahweh that he puts on righteousness like a breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head, and he puts on a garment of vengeance for clothing, and he wraps himself with zeal like a mantle. So this imagery, this warfare, battle time imagery is actually rooted in the Old Testament image of Yahweh preparing himself, girding himself, decking himself for spiritual battle against his enemies. And you and I too, if we are to be successful in ministry, we have to be decked out in battle wear. We have to have, you know, they have under armor. You've heard of this type of clothing I wear. It keeps you real warm. I think my jacket I brought today is under armor. You know, we have to have a spiritual armor 
all around us at all times. But what does this spiritual armor consist of? It consists of the truths of the gospel, things like faith, things like salvation, and what he says here, weapons of righteousness. This is very interesting as well when you realize that the closest parallel to that very phrase is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul uses this same phrase. Uh, The Greek word is hoplon, which means uh, either instrument or weaponry. And in Romans chapter 6, you know that it is often translated instrument that you not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but instruments of righteousness. It's the same phraseology. It's the same phraseology. The reason I bring this in is to bring in a moral element to this whole thing. That when he says weapons of righteousness, we could say it is the weapons that consist of righteous living, that consist of righteousness itself. It is that that gives him the strength, the armament for ministry. And in the face of so much opposition, in the face of so much ridicule, in the face of so many people that are his adversaries and his opponents, what better can the Apostle Paul do but to gird himself with holiness and righteousness with which he can withstand the assaults, not only of the evil one, but also the assaults of those who would want to undermine his ministry, those who would want to deride him, who would want to caricature him the way that he's being caricatured right here in the in the epistle of 2 Corinthians, that he is a, that he's a double-minded pastor, that he's a double-minded man, that he makes commitments, but then he doesn't keep them, that he says he'll come and see you, but then he doesn't see you. And obviously, he goes into great detail as to why those things were so. But then we'll, we'll learn in chapter 11 of this book that there were abs- actually false apostles, false teachers that were coming in and directly assaulting the doctrine and the teaching and the authority of the Apostle Paul himself. Now, let's move on to the next point, which is not only dealing with his spiritual fortitude, but more than that now, he gets into a description of the various ministry paradoxes entailed in the ministry. And as I was reading these, I can't help but to tell you that my soul was saying, amen, amen, amen. Because ministry is paradoxical. Ministry is, is, ministry is hard. <laughs> Can I just be honest with you? Ministry is, is tough. Ministry will squeeze every last ounce of sanity that you have left. So You better have the mind of Christ because you're going to go insane. So you better have somebody else's mind at work. But look at these paradoxical statements he makes right here in verses 8 to 10. And I'm going really quick. I feel like I'm talking quick, but boy, I tell you, I, I picked up a couple of expository commentaries. That's its commentaries that are basically like sermons. And I picked up a lot of commentaries this week. Some of them just kind of lightly brush over each one of these things, give you maybe a sentence, maybe two. Well, that's about it. And sort of just sum up thematically what's going on here. I can't do that. I got too much John MacArthur in me to just skip over those kind of things i got to go into every little phrase, even if you guys end up hating me at the end of the day. Because they're so rich. They're very, very instructive, and they, have, they contain so much good for us. He says, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. So he goes into this whole litany now of paradoxical tensions in the ministry, things that he suffered, things that he underwent, various opinions. These are polarizations of Paul. On the one hand, there were those that, 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 that saw him as having glory, honor is a better translation at that point, and those that depicted him as dishonorable, having no honor. So the first group, let me just break this down as we go from verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Each verse represents, I think, a different aspect, a different element that he's trying to highlight. And it is born in an antithesis. What do I mean by that? Well, first, he begins with a moral or immoral antithesis. That's what he's getting at when he speaks of glory, dishonor, evil report, good report, uh, Deceiver, yet true. You see that? There's a moral quality to all of this. 
there are those who obviously were undermining his reputation. There were those that would be attacking him. And there were those who had an opinion of Paul that said that he was a dishonorable minister, (coughs) that he had no honor. Now, obviously, that's true of false teachers, as we could suspect. But I also want to alert you to the fact that there were also those, even within the church, as we'll go on to find in chapter 11, that were misinformed, that were deceived, uh, brethren that were misinformed about who Paul was, who had begun to believe the gossip and the slander that was going on about him. Now, Paul gives his own sort of analysis, if you would, of his ministry. He, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for example, he describes himself in a way, almost sarcastically, that, that would really be what is being said about him, sort of going along with the folly of the fool that is accusing him. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 10, it says, We are fools for Christ's sake. At least to say, this is the way that we're being described. We are being depicted, we are being described as fools. And so in a sense, Paul is saying, look, we'll, we'll own that. We'll suffer that. We'll go through that if that's what it takes. We will be fools for Christ. Isn't that amazing? He says, but you are prudent. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished. But we are without honor. Hear the same phraseology. No honor to our name. Let me tell you something. If you desire to go into full-time ministry, if you desire to be in ministry at all, particularly if you are going to stand as one of God's spokesmen, if you're going to be the man of God opening the word of God and telling people what the will of God is in his word, expect opposition. Expect, as a matter of fact, that your name will be drugged through the mud. I can't tell you how many pastors I know of, good, godly pastors that I know of, that have their accusers, that have those people that always just want to undermine them and undermine their ministry and gossip and slander about them. Obviously, that's not to say that the Apostle Paul would ever allow lies to just go on. No, he addressed those things. But it's just a sort of part of the calling that you undergo slander. Your name, thank you, is, that, that feels like honor right there, not dishonor. Thank you, brother. But you know, you got to be ready for your name to be dragged through the mud at the expense of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's as if you are ready to have your name derided for the sake of His name being glorified. And you know what the true minister of God says? Amen. Let it be so. You can call me whatever you want. You can caricature me. You can deride my character. You can slander me. You can gossip my ministry. And I do it and I suffer it gladly for the sake of his name. Listen, it's this simple. If the Apostle Paul was derided, you will be too. If Jesus was maligned, for his ministry. Your ministry will be too. If it is anything of an inkling of a biblical ministry. Because this is what happens in a biblical ministry. This is, as a matter of fact, Paul would tell the Corinthians, divisions, schisms, those things are appointed for every church. They're necessary sometimes. How many good churches have gone through church splits? How many good men of God have shed theological bloodshed that cost them sleepless nights, ulcers, all sorts of anxiety problems. Oh boy, are you sure you want to get into the ministry? Because that's what it'll take. It will take fortifying yourself with these weapon, with the weaponry of righteousness. It will take being, being up to the task. It will take death. Dear brothers and sisters, it takes a death. That's why Paul says, I die daily daily deaths that he would die. But at the same time, we should not be uh, surprised that there are some, especially of the unbelieving type, unbelievers, unregenerate, enemies, false prophets, people that would persecute Paul throughout the book of Acts, that would respond in this negative fashion. It shouldn't surprise us. Go back to chapter 2, if you would, and look at verse 14. It is rooted in the nature of the gospel itself to produce these type of polar opposite opinions. 
2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, it is unavoidable. You are a fragrance. You will smell of something. Your ministry will have an aromatic sort of effect no matter what you do. To one, the aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? This is why he goes on to say right after this in chapter 3, look, we, we need the adequacy from God We need the power of God. We're not adequate in ourselves to handle all of these things. Our adequacy has to come from Him. Now let's move on to the next one, which is moving away from the moral and immoral antithesis to a different antithesis, which is what I've entitled human and divine. Human and divine. Listen to what he says here. He says, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death. And the reason I entitled it the divine antithesis is because we know what power is keeping Paul. We know what power is at work in preserving Paul's life so that over and over the apostle Paul's life is spared from seemingly certain death, as we'll go on to see. But the first thing, as unknown yet well known, And you know, commentators go all over the map here trying to figure out what does this mean as unknown. And I just think it means this, that on a myriad of different levels, Paul had those people whose assessment of him made him virtually an unknown. You know, he's the mighty apostle Paul to us. But you go outside these doors and you go out into the world and you start talking to people around the Super Bowl fellowship today and Well, who's Paul compared to, you know, who's playing today, the Niners guy or whoever? He's no one. He has nothing to commend him. He doesn't possess any inherent worldly notoriety. He has nothing with which to impress the world by. And even in the church, coming off of what we just looked at, there were those who did not esteem his authority, for example, did not esteem his apostolic office either. And so in some ways, the Apostle Paul was ready for this. He was ready to say, look, we have no glory. We have no glory at all. You know, the passion of the Christ didn't, he get, didn't even get nominated once for anything. As great as that movie was, or well, maybe you disagree with me. I thought it was great. I think it's at least deserving of some sort of recognition. There was nothing. Why? Because the world has set itself in opposition to God and in opposition to the message of God and in opposition to the messengers of God. That's why. Now, Paul gives sort of his own assessment, if you would, of his ministry. Again, going back, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. I've got to read this to you. I've got to read this to you. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. It says, because we have become a spectacle to the world. The world just looks on at these apostles like they're just, these are just fools. Look at these guys suffering. For what? For some Jewish Messiah figure that went around in the desert proclaiming to do miracles and things? Yes, for the name of Jesus Suffering for the sake of Jesus, he, he, he sort of enlarges this to an exaggerated point when he says, both to angels and to men, almost as if to say, look, heaven and earth is watching. And what are we? We are on the stage. We look like fools. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated. We are homeless. The apostle Paul was a homeless man. Did you know that? Uh, according to Murray Harris's t- exegetical commentary, he says, uh, Apostle Paul was so poor, he was, he, was, he was even poor even compared to our standards today. He was definitely below the poverty line. You know, he didn't have all of these glorious and, you know, glamorous, you know, 
pastor conferences that there are today. You know, with all this gr- incredible facilities and all this incredible technology. And, you know, I went to one pastor's conference, and one of the pastors had this huge entourage around him. You couldn't even come up and talk to him. Boy, I just wonder, is that Paul? I don't know. He's in the marketplace sharing with everyone who happens to be there. A little humility we could learn from Paul, right? Anyway, although Paul suffered at the hands of the world, even at the hands of divisive people within the church who didn't really recognize him, Paul's true identity, his true calling, his qualifications, his apostolic ministry was known to God because God appointed him. That's what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he was appointed a minister. Uses this technical word, tithemi, which literally means it's a technical language for God officially putting someone into office. And that's what God did. God officially put Paul into office as an authoritative apostle. Although he says in Galatians, he was one who came, at, who was born out of due time. In other words, he's a Johnny come lately, but he's an apostle because he saw the risen Christ. Because he saw, he knew the risen Lord. He had a personal encounter with the risen Lord. And the Lord Jesus himself commissioned him, called him, qualified him, enlisted him. Who cares what other people are saying? Who cares if others don't recognize your calling, Paul? And there were certainly those that were tempted to to question his calling from the very start. You remember in the book of Acts, he gets saved, he goes to the disciples, and what happens? They're afraid to associate with him. That this is the one that used to persecute the church. This is the one that put Stephen to death. This is the one that was going, you know, he was going to go on and, and persecute Christians. He went from a Christian killer, right, to a Christian himself. This is amazing. So Paul is always and constantly calling upon God to be his witnesses, the one who really knows him, the one before whom he will really be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that very thing. He says, look, my judgment, your judgment really doesn't matter. The only judgment that matters at the end of the day is the last day. The only judgment that matters at the end of the day is the judgment that comes from the judge. The judge of all the earth. And what I am and who I am will be manifested to him. And he will manifest it. And uh, that's exactly what he, why he often commends himself in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. He says he, he, he did what he did in the consciences of men and in the sight of God. Which is a, a reference to his his accountability before God. And uh, moving on here, again we get this sort of swinging back to this idea of a physical of a physical adversity. He says, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death. There were so many times where this man should have died. Where Paul should not have walked out of that prison. Paul should not have made it to shore. Paul should not have made it across the sea on that boat that night. Paul shouldn't have, he should have starved to death. Paul should have been martyred. Paul should have been beaten to death as he was. And where was it? In Ephesus, I think it was, or Derby, where they left him for dead. They thought he was dead. They left him there on the ground. They thought he was dead. And so they walked away, just leaving. He's dead. Let's go. Let's go to lunch. And it says the disciples came, gathered around and prayed. He got up. God strengthened him. And what did he do? He goes, i got to go on a vacation. No. It says he went right back into the city. He didn't get enough. Got this gigantic uh, spider web coming at me here. It's kind of creepy. Sorry, I just saw this huge spider web coming my way. People on the audio won't see that, so this just be our little secret. <coughs> But you see what I'm saying, this is an extraordinary man. And when we survey all of the different things that he went through, we can only conclude that it was the power of God keeping him alive. For example, in 2 Corinthians, he'll go on to tell this story. This story is just amazing. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.30, he says, Look, I'm going to boast to what pertains to my weakness. And that's why anytime he's talking about dying, that's why anytime he's talking about being punished, he knows that it's only by the divine power of God, the providence of God, that he is sustained and protected, that he is kept 
that God is keeping him from certain death. He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever. I love that little qualification. I hope you bless God. I hope you talk like that. I hope you recognize that just in the midst of your conversations and your soliloquies, I hope that you think of God as that, just like that. Blessed forever, God, because of what you've done for me. He says that he knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. <laughs> this, is, this is the fugitive Paul, running from the law, escaping in a basket through a window, getting let down with a rope. Isn't ministry fun? Sounds like Indiana Jones or something. Only the stakes are much higher. It's heaven or hell. It's eternity. It's the gospel. It's the mysteries of the gospel. It's the mysteries of God. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. He's preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. The stakes are much, much higher than anything we can conceive of. This is what ministry consists of. And so Paul often suffered in this way. Let's move on to our, to our last thing, which is this. The situational and the spiritual antithesis. You know I like to keep the symmetry of these words right. And this is what I chose. Situational, which is to say circumstantial, right? His circumstances would call for us to conclude that the Apostle Paul was solely sorrowful and impoverished. That he should be ground into powder. There should be nothing left of this man after we consider his life and labors. Look at verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Th that's right. This text, I think, is ascending in intensity. It's getting more and more intense as the verse goes on. He begins by talking about sorrow, which is just a general catch-all phrase that just suggests, look, there are so many instances of the life of Paul that should have filled his life with sorrow. Think of the Galatian church. Here is a church that he founded. Here is a church that he labored among them. And he says, I fear that I might have labored among you in vain. He says, look, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be complete in the flesh? I am amazed at you, Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. And you could just think of all that he meant there in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty, where he says, all of the concerns that come upon me from the churches, all of the concerns, all the faces he had in his mind, all the names, all the situations, all the problems that Paul had, and you would think, boy, as he's writing his prison epistles, as he's writing the book of Philippians, which has been called the book of joy, this man was able to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, real sorrow, physical sorrow, mental sorrow, spiritual sorrow. It says in chapter 7 in this book that he was depressed. And so he thanked God that God comforts the depressed. Do you not get depressed? Do you not know what it means to be in depression? The only person I know that doesn't get depressed is John MacArthur because he said that. He said, I don't have time to get depressed. Uh, boy, I had a hard time with that. I'm like, I do. I got plenty of time to get depressed. There's sometimes where I lay in bed and I don't want to get up. I'm so depressed. I feel like I preach the worst sermon. I feel like I can't study ever again. I feel like my life is just not what it should be. I feel like I failed here and I failed there and I failed my wife and I failed the church and I failed the ministry. And, you know, it's very easy when you look at your failures to get up again and to keep going and to rejoice, to rejoice. But he did. He was filled with joy and it was transcendent joy. It was that joy that rose above all of his earthly circumstances, all of his earthly situations and circumstances in life. It transcended his trials. It transcended the bills. It transcended the marriage. It transcended the family. It transcended the, the society all around. It transcended his physical pain. 
Do you have physical pain? Some of the most godly people I've ever met were people that were racked with pain in their body. Spurgeon was. Spurgeon had gout and often couldn't walk. Spurgeon would get gout and he'd often lay in bed depressed all night. But he rejoiced as well as Paul did, just like Paul did, rather. He was encouraged by the Scriptures. He not only rejoiced, but he knew that these realities were true. This is so glorious. He knew that the truth was that though it looks like on the surface, this poor tent-making apostle has no money. (laughs) But the reality is, the only reality that, that matters or that counts is the eternal reality is the divine reality, the heavenly reality, the God-centered reality that though he might have been physically, materialistically poor, he was spiritually rich beyond his wildest dreams and was making other people rich. That is so glorious. We could just hang on to that and realize, store your treasure in heaven where nothing can get at it. Isn't it amazing how our things break down? Right now, I'm having problems with my computer. I'm like, need a new computer. There's, I don't even want to say how much that's going to cost. <laughs> you know, but things break down. I got books that are breaking down. My Wayne Grudem book, the binding is all cracked. It's falling out. I got pages falling out. That's 30 bucks. Our stuff breaks down. I'm trying to sell my house. I got to fix all these drywall cracks in my house. Why? Because my house is breaking down. It's wearing out. It's running out of it's running out of energy. It's, 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 it's succumbing to the effects of the fall. And so are you, and so am I. And so therefore, we ought to be rich toward God. We ought to store our treasures in heaven where moth and thief and, and rust don't come in. It is, it is absolutely the most solid investment we could ever make. There's no gamble. It is secure. You know, if you have a stock market background... You know about the gambles of investing, right? Every day you're like, whoa, 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 what's going to happen? It's going up and down. Where's my future going? But you know that if you invest in the kingdom of God, if you invest in the riches of the kingdom and the riches of Christ and the riches of making other people rich in Christ, you know that that treasure will never fade away. God will give you the unfading crown of glory. Do we believe it? That's what it boils down to. Do we believe this? Do we believe that we are, look at the last phrase, possessing all things? That's the final analysis, right? He couldn't have said it any more exhaustive than that. Just to say, look, there are those who who summarize, there are those that conclude based on the things that they see externally, on the surface, circumstantially, there are those who, who conclude that we have nothing that we are basically utterly bankrupt of anything valuable whatsoever. You know what the truth is? The truth is that actually it's the complete opposite. You possess all things. I, I possess all things. Everything. What does that mean? I think it means what Paul told the Corinthians earlier when he said, all things belong to you. Christ, Paul, Apollos, all things belong to you. You see, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Him. That's why we have to set our eyes on the things that are eternal. And in the context of what we're talking about here, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with Him, If we endure with Him, guess what? We will also reign with Him. We will reign with Him in His kingdom. We will reign forever with the King of kings in His never-ending kingdom. And that will be the most glorious revelation of all. That on the surface in these lives, these temporal lives that we live in in this temporal world, That these lives that we live, though they might have appeared as if we were struggling for our next meal like Paul did, that we were struggling for how we're going to make the bills and how we're going to pay for this and how we're going to afford the things that we like, that there was a spiritual dynamic at work the whole time. 
That as we were enduring and persevering and hunkering down and choosing rather to have an eternal perspective instead of an earthly, time-bound, mundane perspective of our lives and of our trials especially, there was this principle at work that we actually were making many rich, that we actually possessed all things by virtue of our union with Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. I've broken a guitar string, so I doubt I'm going to get on that thing right now. So let's pray, and uh, I'd like to pray this, pray over you, and I'd like to read a scripture as a benediction for us today. Let's pray together. Oh, glorious, glorious God, you are so magnificent in all of your ways. Father, we thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for the greater reality that governs all things. We thank you, God, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We thank you, God, that the work that we do for your namesake, in your kingdom, for your glory, Lord, is not in vain, but it will remain unto eternal life if we do it unto you, unto your glory, with the right heart, with the right motive. And we pray that it would, that we would, that our works would not burn like chaff on that day. Oh, Lord, give us that perspective that we need. It's so easy, and we confess to you that it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of eternity. It's so easy for us to believe the promises of God, the promises of your word, and so please help our unbelief today. Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are so thankful for the privilege of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper in your church. Father, please use Heritage Grace as a beacon of truth in the midst of so much darkness. Use us, Lord, Individually, every family, every man and woman, child that's in Christ, use our witness, use our testimony at work among our family members, among our neighbors, and use us corporately as a church that we would be a church that people can look into and say, they, they, that church there fears the Lord. That church loves the Word. That church worships God with a heartfelt zeal. Give us these things, Lord. Mature us, Father, according to your will and according to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to read to you, just in closing here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, reflecting again on his labors, he said, At first, at my first defense, nobody supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and He strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, probably a reference to Caesar Nero there. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and He will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever Amen. 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 God bless you all.